Well, um, tonight we are going to continue in the book of Matthew. Uh, And if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's teaching on doubt, it was probably one of the best teachings I have ever heard on doubt. So if you're kind of in a season where things feel hard, you're questioning, um, maybe God, his presence in your life, whatever, I just want to encourage you, go back and listen to the podcast maybe two or three times like I did this week and be uh, encouraged. It was really great. Um, So we're in Matthew. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 11. You'll remember, um, hopefully, that we were there last week. Now, as you're turning, a few things I'd like for you to keep in mind. Our text tonight picks up with Jesus, if you remember. He's in the region of Galilee, which is like a a, a region over there that's about 75 miles north of Jerusalem. And um, and we know that that Jesus had been preaching and teaching in this area. He'd kind of been moving from town to town and, um, and, and talking about the things of God. Now, in the beginning of the chapter, we found Jesus addressing uh, the doubt of John the Baptist, who was a prophet and a man who Jesus called the greatest uh, man or the greatest person he knew in the kingdom. So that was like a pretty big deal. And at the end of the first section, Jesus kind of um, wound things up by inviting people to trust amidst doubt and uncertainty, which will, I think, in many ways set the tone for our text tonight. So now that you're completely caught up and you are already in Matthew chapter 11, let's go ahead and read tonight's text. We're going to pick up in verse 16. So Jesus is continuing to speak, and he says, To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to the children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Well, a familiar verse, maybe for some of us, um, maybe not the whole thing, you know, but at least that in part is slightly uh, familiar. Tonight, we are gonna work through the text line by line, and then I'm hoping we're just gonna be able to circle back and get to the heart of what Jesus is after in this kind of chunk of scripture. Are you ready? Great, 
Some of you are eager. I made two new friends who I think are going to be big champions for talking during this thing with me. That'd be great. Hey, guys. Um, that's what happens when you meet a friend at the four or the two minutes or whatever. Okay, verse 16 through 19. Jesus says, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, who knows, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Now here, we find Jesus, he's wrapping up his conversation, and he does so with an illustration. He basically compares the unbelieving people of the day with pouty kids who didn't like the game that was being played in the schoolyard. And so he goes on to explain. In verse 17, Jesus begins by speaking about John. Remember this great prophet of the day who was known, you know, it's no secret, known for being a little bit more traditional in his life and in his ministry. That's a gentle worm word. Uh, John was a notably more serious man. We know from the scriptures that he lived in the wilderness in a more isolated setting. So he was like less social, more introverted, right? And uh, maybe a little awkward because of that. We know that he ate locust and honey like many of you do uh, on a weekly basis. And um, and we know that he was a little bit weird. And what we do also know from the scriptures is that it was no secret that John was very direct about what it would cost when he spoke about the kingdom that was coming. And you know, the reality is, John wasn't known for being the cool guy or the fun guy at the party. In fact, I don't think we even know if John would go to a party, honestly, kind of low key, hence the darker language in the text around him. And so Jesus here, he basically says, hey look, John came in the right way. For the people of the day, this is how they would have expected a prophet to come. And yet, he says, you had an excuse claiming he has a demon, which seems like an odd thing to say, and it is odd. It's an odd thing to say. What, what they were basically saying was that um, they didn't really like his message. They didn't like the way it was uh, sounded. They didn't like the way uh, it came packaged to them, and so they rejected it. Now in verse 19, Jesus begins to refer to himself and he says, look, I came and I came in a really different way than John. I was social, at least by the standards of the day. But you, you didn't like my choice of company, the friend, the tax collectors and sinners. And I, I even, I ate and drank among you and you still rejected me saying I was on the other extreme. I was now a drunkard and a glutton. And you know, honestly, as I studied this text, for me, it's been really hard to fathom uh, that the people of the day had within their midst both John the Baptist, the greatest, one of the greatest prophets to ever live, and Jesus the Messiah, and yet they found themselves being critical and unimpressed. And I struggled this week because I was like, these people are the worst. Like, and I was telling Jesus as I'm like typing, I'm like, these people are awful. They are this, and and slowly the Holy Spirit was like, but you you do that. There, there are times I'm in your midst and you are still critical and unimpressed. And so I repented and moved deeper into the text. Now, from this text, we, we see that the ministries of both John and Jesus for some, and arguably for many, had become more of a passing interest than something that had led to life change. It was more about, it seems, fascination than faith. 
And Jesus is calling it out right here in the text. And as he calls it out, he does this beautiful thing. And he's actually slowly, as he calls it out, he's offering one more chance for them to embrace a different kingdom vision than what they had anticipated. Now, in verse 19, I just want us to take a look at the end of that. And there's this uh, saying, it says, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Or another way Luke said it, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. And um, maybe it sounds weird to you just upon first hearing, maybe it doesn't. But here, this is just Jesus reiterating his point. Um, it's what we say, at least where I'm from, the proof is in the pudding, right? Some of you, do you know what I'm talking, do you ever say that here? Proof is in the pudding, yeah, proof's in the pudding. Anyway, I did all this research about that phrase. It's very interesting. Um, I don't have time, but it was really interesting. Look it up when you get a chance at home when you're not here. Um, so proof is in the pudding, and he doesn't obviously say that, but he could have. Um, what he's basically saying is you'll know those who are really in the kingdom, and you'll know that by the way that they act and live, by their lifestyle, by their response to the message of the kingdom. Scripture says that the starting place for wisdom is learning to fear God. It, it, that wisdom is the application of both knowledge and understanding. So those who are wise those will be people who enter into life in the kingdom, and as they do so, it will be proven by their deeds. Now, it's super interesting to note when we're in this text that the people's disinterest or their response to John and Jesus affected those two men in really different ways. For John, it contributed to a genuine space of doubt about Jesus himself. And for Jesus, it led to both a lament and a warning. Look down at verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, do you remember Sodom? Look up for a second. Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. Does that sound more of it? Maybe. Um, that's an Old Testament um, town that was basically destroyed because God had to judge the city. There was so much evil going on. Okay, back down. So it would have been better. It's better to be Sodom, ooh, which is like the Old Testament pinnacle of like bad stuff going on than you. So that was a little bit... They knew that. They were like, whoa, okay. It was a big deal. Um, it, they would have remained to this day. If God had been there, if he had, Jesus had been present, then they, he says they would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Um, Jesus goes on in the text to offer what N.T. Wright calls um, the most sober and serious words that Jesus ever said. Right out the gate, Jesus speaks of his disapproval and his disappointment of these cities in his area. And I want you to note that Jesus wasn't just talking about these cities, he was talking to them. And he starts where he ministered most, why? Because this was personal. He knew the people of these towns, they were his friends and his neighbors. This was the baker where he bought the bread, these are the people he met in the synagogue. The cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida were walkable from Jesus' hometown, places where his ministry was vibrant and alive. So when Jesus gets ready and he compares them to Tyre and Sidon, cities that were known by the people of the day for being pagan and godless, the message was clear. 
Now in verse 23, he goes on to address Capernaum, a city that was central to Jesus' life and ministry. So central, in fact, that you might even recognize um, the name. You know, um, there's this phrase in the text, lifted to heaven, and it was thought that at the time, scholars think that they were going to make the town motto lifted to heaven because of their sense of civic pride from having Jesus' ministry based in their town. Hence why calling them out is so provocative. Now, I'm not going to say much more about that except that we see Jesus clearly condemning the pride of believing you are a Christian town or nation simply because you have the motto. Now, he goes on and he says, it would be better for them to be Sodom on the day of judgment than themselves. Why? Because unlike Sodom, they have seen and experienced the presence of God and still rejected his way of life, rejected the way of the kingdom. Now, here's the big point that you need to get. These towns had been there for it all all of Jesus' ministry in so many unique ways, and yet despite all the remarkable things he had done, they were still bent on going their own way, on following their own vision for God's kingdom. And Jesus knew where that would lead. Now listen, Jesus is never interested in the sponsoring of his presence. He is only interested in the response to his presence. And so Jesus, as he's moving towards this vested interest of life change, considers this very serious business as he's speaking to his friends. And Jesus is, he is, we can't deny it, he's speaking words of judgment to them, which is a word that I know a lot of, makes a lot of us uncomfortable. But I want you to get this about Jesus' judgment here in this text. He is not scolding, this isn't a scolding for those who are broken and repentant, It is for those who are in his presence and not making a decision to be changed by him. Jesus uses the message of judgment uh, to draw people always to his message of salvation. He's not walking around just ready to drop the boulder when the time comes. He's doing it for the purpose of moving them to a different way of living, to actual life. There is a pleading in his tone and in his deliverance of this judgment. Stanley Hauerwas, a scholar on the book of Matthew, put it this way. Only through judgment are we forced to discover forms of life that can free us from our enchantment with sin and death. No doubt it's easier to want a gospel of love that ensures that when everything is said and done, everyone and everything is going to be okay. But as a scholar so simply put it this week, we are not okay. Now, from here, Jesus shifts gears and he moves from talking to the people to talking to God. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, or another way to say that is intelligent, the wise and the intelligent, and revealed to them, uh, revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, in our text, it kind of seems like a a bit of an abrupt change. Jesus is out here, and he's talking to the people, and he just got done talking about judgment, hoping, pushing, I believe, for the purpose of people's salvation. And, And now, he quickly shifts his focus and his attention to heaven. 
And that word praise there is interchangeable with this idea of giving thanks. Jesus gives thanks to the Father Father, for hiding the secrets of the kingdom from those who think they are wise and intelligent and revealing them to children instead. Howard Wass, our Matthew scholar, noted that the reference here is, uh, to wise and intelligent are often names for the power and violence employed to sustain our illusions of superiority. And this is what Jesus is getting at. Simply he's saying that the reality of the kingdom won't be found by those who think they know what it is or think they know what it should be, but really it will be just the opposite. The kingdom comes to those who are like children, who are humble and dependent, who are open to faith, who are weary and burdened and in need of a rescue. Now in verse 27, Jesus does something that's really important. Here we find him, he makes another claim that he is in fact the Messiah they've been waiting for. And though I think it feels a little bit roundabout in how he says it, he's actually being pretty direct. Dale Bruner, another scholar, said it like this. He said, the saying, no one really knows the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, is the moment where Jesus is placed on the side of the Father, in contrast to all humanity. This is a defining moment in the life of Jesus. And what we read here tells us that the Father is and has fully been revealed through his Son, Jesus. Or as one scholar put it, in and through Jesus, God gets a face. And not only that, but there's something else to note. We get this really beautiful, unique perspective into Jesus' relationship with the Father in this text. We see him coming to him, um, not with, with spiritual rhetoric or, or just like a big study book and being like, okay, if I like pray this way or do it this way, then God will hear me. But he actually comes to him like a son would, and he comes thanking him, just moving right into the presence of God, listening to God and being with him. And this is really important. Again, as we're reading this text, this is a powerful picture of how not only Jesus comes, but how we're to come. So Jesus makes this claim in um, verse 25, and and we move in slowly then into verse 28. Now, um, many of us are familiar with this one. Maybe um, you've seen this verse stitched and framed in your Nana's house. I don't know. Um, Or maybe um, a friend has sent you this text in a season of stress or duress or hardship. But whatever your familiarity is with the text, I don't want you to miss how this fits into what Jesus is after here. Look at verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, the first thing we see here is an invitation. Come to me or come follow me. This was Jesus' go-to language for people to come to him and find healing through their apprenticeship to him. And who is Jesus calling? He's calling the weary and the burdened, those who are tired and burned out, those who are stressed, those who are aching to be saved from the burdens of this life. And the question we should be asking um, is actually one that the people of the day probably were asking, which is who has the right to invite us into such a thing? Well, um, all the verses leading up to this point, especially the ones that just came before the text, told us that only the Messiah could do it. And here is our Messiah doing it. He's saying, okay, look, I'm the guy. And I'm the one who can actually invite you into this way of life. 
and he does it so flawlessly. He's a master, and, and no pun intended, but he is. Now, the word yoke here refers to a common rabbinic idiom in the first century. It's an odd image for those of us who don't live in an agrarian society. Maybe you live out in farmland, and that makes sense to you. But for most of us, we don't totally understand it. Um, and yet, at the same time, there's powerful imagery that's playing out here. Think of two oxen yoked together um, to pull a cart or to plow a field. The, the yoke is the thing that kind of connects them together. It's the place where they shoulder the load. That's kind of the idea that you're getting. Now, in context, this is actually really bizarre language when we're talking about an invitation to rest. Yokes are usually for work. The, yeah. Okay, um, so Dale Bruner, he offered this insight to this crazy paradox that we found in this text, and he said this, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we think, what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. And he's not wrong, right, a little bit. Jesus realizes, though, that the most restful gift he can give to the tired is a new way to carry that life a fresh way to bear the responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a life of succession of burdens. and We cannot get away from them, thus instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. I love this. One of the most helpful expressions of this verse I've ever read. Now, a, a rabbi's yoke, I just don't want you to get lost in that, what, what Jesus is actually asking of us, because I want to translate a bit. A, a yoke for a rabbi was his like, kind of set of teachings, the way that he would read or understand the Torah, but more than that, so just that's like a part of it, but more than that, the, the crux of the yoke was how he would live life in the kingdom, or really how he would say to be human. So when Jesus is saying, take my yoke, he's saying, take on how I'm telling you to be human. Now I have um, this image up here I want you to take a look at. Those are oxen. I actually don't know if they're cows or whatever. I asked like four people, but I think they're in that family. I have no idea. So someone tell me later. I don't know. But look how cute they are. And you've noticed that one is bigger than the other, yes? Yes, good. Okay, so I'd like to give you an image. If, if the animals are too much for your heart to bear, then I want you to imagine me. I'm 5'9", actually, without these giant heels on, but why not be six foot if you can be, huh? Uh, so everyone can talk about it a lot. Uh, so imagine me, I'm 5'9", I'm in real life, with flat shoes on, and I have a niece who's like two and a half, and she's the best, and she's about two and a half feet tall. She's like a small fry. And, um, and she's the best, her name's Naomi, and she's like fierce. Um, so let's just say that, I, that, that Naomi and I would like to be yoked together. And so we put, they put the yoke on me, and it kind of like drips way down onto her shoulders. So it's a little bit like this, you know? And, um, or the oxen, you can look here, whichever. And let's say that they're like, okay, now mush, or whatever you say to oxen or people. <laughs> uh, and so we start moving forward, and Naomi's like, yes! We're doing it, honeybee, that's so cool. And I'm like, we're doing it, Naomi, we sure are. Because who's carrying the weight of the, the, the load? Probably. Me, because she's two and a half feet tall and very small. She's like the size of my thigh or whatever, you know? So, so we're moving ahead and, and honeybee's helping her bear the yoke and she's along for the ride, and I'm like, you're doing a great job helping, because she's a very big and very good helper, you should know. Um, but, 
but, but I'm doing most of the yoking, yeah? The most of the burden is on me because I'm the biggest one. And this is kind of the image I want you to grasp when you're thinking about Jesus and the yoke he's offering. The, the image is that Jesus would be the big person actually shouldering the load and that you would be next to him shouldering the load with him, next to him talking about all the places you're going to go as Jesus is just trucking along and you're like, yeah, and so we can also go get ice cream and we could go do this like Naomi would be, like, this is so fun. I'm like, this is fun, sweating and dying inside on so many levels, yeah? I'd be totally dead. Um, but I would, I would like it because Naomi was with me and that would kind of be the trajectory. This is what Jesus is saying. When you take my yoke on, upon you, all it means is you're joining the crew and I'm doing the heavy lifting. And it's beautiful. It's, it's your dad and you. It's like he's so big and you're small and he's still letting you help him. And you are still walking along and you're learning things about him and from him. But it's so much more about what's happening here than what's happening here. He's carrying your load. Are we wrapping our head around that? Yes. And it's beautiful. So at the core, this is Jesus' invitation. He's, he's, he's offering us an invitation to travel through life at his side, to step out of life as we have known it into a new reality, into a place of actual rest, of that deep soul rest. This invitation is exceptional in a million ways. Now, I know that for a lot of us, especially those of us who've been following Jesus for a long time, this verse is one that can be a little bit redundant. Again, we've seen it stitched on so many things that it loses a little bit of its, you know? Or maybe we didn't fully understand it, I don't know. But I think the reality, I think it'd be fair at least to say that some of us, or a lot of us, haven't fully experienced what it's like to be in a position like this. And I think that's largely because we have yet to actually embrace the lifestyle of the yoke. Hidden in plain sight, there's an invitation of Jesus in what Dallas Willard called the secret of the easy yoke, and he writes this about it. In this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else does. It's a strategy bound to fail. John Mark, in his beautiful eloquence, he summarizes it a little bit easier, if that's a little bit more difficult. He says this, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And I think it's easy to read these words of Jesus here in Matthew 11 and be like, yeah, I want that life. I want to be burden-free. I, I want all the benefits of the yoke. I think it sounds great. He'd carry everything, and basically I'm just talking and doing my nails half the time. That sounds wonderful. But I think so few of us are actually unwilling to adopt the lifestyle that he's saying is essential for the yoke-bearing. Of course, I know this doesn't happen overnight, but if you think about the rhythm of your life, you have to ask yourself, are your habits like his habits? Because here's the deal with the yoke. Somebody's next to you, and if they're not keeping up with the pace, and your pace is probably slow and patient or whatever, but things begin to get a little bit awkward and stumbly and, and fumbly, right? And if, if they're not really present or the, the yoke begins to hit them in the back of the head and you're like, your head is getting hit by the yoke or whatever, it, things get weird. That's what we're talking about. Adopting the lifestyle means adopting his rhythm of life. 
of doing things the way he does his practices. And this side-by-side relationship should be the space where you're learning what it means to live as he lived. Not just on Sunday and not on Tuesday, but every day. To follow and adopt the lifestyle of Jesus is to embrace a new way of living altogether. And it is one that is marked by freedom and peace. It's him still, yes, doing all the heavy lifting. And he's doing it at his pace, but it's you staying in step with him. In step with the slow, unhurried, present to the moment, covered in love space that he is offering. Now, we've covered a a good bit uh, this evening, and you've been very brilliant. So way to go. Um, But I'd like to, before we end tonight, I'd just like to take a moment and just unpack what I think is a unique progression that we find in this text. And in doing so, my heart really is that we would wrap our minds around what Jesus is actually getting after and all these kind of what feel a little bit chunky successions of scripture. When we look at the text, we are finding, I think, a rhythm of life with Jesus. And this is both, I think, for the disciple of Jesus, someone who tonight would say, yes, I'm following Jesus best I can. And for those of you who are are saying, I don't know yet. I'm on the outside, I'm wondering, I'm not sure, I'm kind of looking and, and paying attention. But this is for both of us, I believe. So here's the first thing I think that we can take away from this. I I think it's going to have to start, if we're going to actually enter into the rhythm of life with Jesus, I think it starts with the letting go of our idea of right. But that is so much easier said than done, right? You're like, I don't even have a strong personality, and this is a struggle. Of course it's a struggle. Think about all the decisions you made today to get here. Whether, whatever you are, introvert, nine, whatever your, like, whatever your jam is, all of us had to make decisions about what we thought was right today. I thought pink was the right choice today. So I made the choice of pink. Yes, and some of you agree. And some of you are like, no ma'am, not again. Uh, which is fine. But there's an intrinsic value here that's essential if we're actually going to begin the process of coming to Jesus. My friend puts it this way. In order to receive the true gospel, you have to let go of the one that you're holding on to. Meaning, we have to let go of our own ideas of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to live in his kingdom. We are small beings with big britches sometimes. And there's a great age-old temptation to this life, and that is to believe that our way is the best way. To believe that we know better and best than God himself. From the garden until now, we know there will always be a temptation to be our own and final authority. And I think now it feels like, I know it's not true, but more than ever it feels true. This idea of giving up our right to define or to declare what is right is harder for most of us than we think. Think about culture today. Specifically, think about Christian culture today. It praises the narrative of your preference. It's about your experience, your best experience, what you prefer in a space or what you don't prefer. It's about what makes you feel good in the moment. And it's that thing that makes you feel good that informs in the moment your highest value. And these things are pulling at us and lying to us. Pleasure has become the barometer of truth. And pleasure, as all of us I think at some level know, is a fickle God. 
when we find ourselves at the center of our reality, when we uh, are in the middle, when we finally succumb to our own self, we actually engage and see the blind spots, which actually leads us to the reality of the pride in our life, which actually leads us to unwarranted, I mean, it feels unwarranted, but it is warranted, doubt, fear, and anxiety. The burden of your will will crush you. That's inevitable. That will happen, and it will keep you from experiencing the life that you were built and made to to experience. At the beginning of our text, Jesus unashamedly called out preference against the reality of the kingdom. And it's clear that our journey as we move towards Jesus starts with giving up our idea of what we think is right or how things should be. And we do this not for naught, but in exchange for the beauty and the reality of the kingdom. Does it mean you'll always understand everything that God's doing? No. Does it mean that you will have to entrust yourself to someone? And sometimes it feels like a free fall. Yes. Can those things be scary? Yes, but if we don't, we will live a life of exhaustion that will ultimately end in death, maybe not physically, but in life, in the way that we encounter life. Letting go of your idea of what is right isn't about you becoming some kind of numb, controlled robot. It's about embracing the reality that is laced with wholeness and rest for your soul. It's a returning It's not a moving away from, it's actually a returning to to the way that you were made to be. And it leads to a a life marked by freedom. Next, we have to allow God to tell us the truth. In our text, Jesus, he boldly calls out the cities who were not following him. And he didn't do it to humiliate them, but to invite them into something better. The imagery in our text about judgment is actually this this picture of separating out or dividing one thing from another. And here Jesus separates out those who were following him and those who were not. And there's no other way around this. He does the same thing with us. When we allow God to tell us the truth, we are inviting him to show us the reality about the condition of our own hearts. Are we following him or are we just fascinated by him? This is where the Spirit of God comes and reveals what's actually true. We live in an age and a time where we love to be disillusioned and distracted by a million other things. And allowing God to tell us the truth seems like it should be simple and yet it is one of the hardest things we experience as a disciple of Jesus really telling us the truth. There are spaces, even for those of us who've been following Jesus for a long time, where we're far more fascinated and more interested in what he's doing than actually following what he's asked of us to do. When we allow God to tell us the truth, we are responding to what the authors in the scriptures call grace. It is an unmerited gift. And as we think about God telling us the truth, I want want you to think of it this way. If your child or a child that you love was near the Willamette River and they didn't have their floaty things on or whatever, um, and and they were walking towards the river, and I just, I graciously called, I said, hey, Johnny, don't go into the river at all. Don't go near the river. You don't have your floaties on. There's a monster in there or whatever, just to keep the kid away from danger. Um, It would be no less gracious of me 
than to pull the child out of the river if the child was in there drowning than it would be for me to tell and warn the child that danger was imminent. Both the warning and the rescue saved the child. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yes, so when we think about what Jesus is saying here, he's actually warning us, he's calling us into something more, and he's doing it from a place of deep love. This is what it means to allow Jesus to tell us the truth, to tell us the truth about what we watched on Netflix last night, to tell us the truth about what we did with our boyfriend or girlfriend last night, to tell us the truth about how we're spending our money. Inviting Jesus to tell us the truth is that space where we are opened up to the reality of the condition of our heart, and guess what? It doesn't produce shame and condemnation. It produces life. The illusion that the enemy has us bound in is that, that those things are actually keeping us safe when actually they're destroying us. Allowing God to tell us the truth is, is actually allowing him to bring oxygen to our being. And so the invitation is to do just that. Next, we see we have to embrace the reality that Jesus is the only way to God. This one, I think, seems simple enough. The way of the kingdom is exclusive in as much as it is exclusive. Now, I know those words are emotionally charged, and I want to honor everyone in the room, but I think this is the reality. In the text, we see that there's an invitation here, and it's inclusive. It is and always will be for all people in all time. Jesus is always, always, always offering the invitation to come to him but it is exclusive in that it is always through him that we must come. In our text, Jesus makes it clear that to know him is to know the Father. And through him, we are invited to come and experience life as it was always intended to be. Now, I know in today's society, it is so easy to want to mitigate this. Trust me, it's, I get that. I really, really get that. But embracing Jesus as the only way to life is inescapable for the true disciple of Jesus. Now, I, I, I think we all get that, and you're like, yes, good theological point, but one more thing I want to say about that. It's easy for me to say that to you as a disciple of Jesus. Heck, I'm a pastor, so, you know, I make tons of money, and I'm awesome, or whatever. There we go. We all took a breath. But here's the truth. This, well, I'll tell you about it in a minute, but, but we're not far from not looking to Jesus about a lot of things. It can seem like, of course, Jesus is the way to the Father. We all get that, whatever. But a lot of times I'm going to a lot of other things and a lot of other people long before I go to Jesus. And I think for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, it's something to pay attention to. Who are you going to over and against Jesus? There's no other way to the Father, to the heart of the Father. Not enough Bethel music can send you to, I mean, yes, by his spirit Jesus can help you, but do you hear what I'm saying? It is through Jesus himself that makes a way to the heart of the Father. Finally, we have to respond to the invitation that's been extended and come. Everything in our text leads us to this moment, the invitation to come. It's almost as if there was a crescendo in our text. And and Jesus begins and he's speaking to those who flat out rejected the message that both he and John had been preaching. And then he specifically calls out those who thought they were part of the kingdom simply because they had experienced miracles in his presence. And then he declares again that that he is Messiah, the one who could give them life and true rest. And then as if the music was getting louder, he invites all of them to come. And he says, come to me, all of you who have rejected me. Come, all of you who don't know me. 
Come, all of me, come to the Father. Come to me and I will give you life and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus wasn't just having a bad day when he was talking with the people. He was a a God who loved his people and one more time was pleading with them to come and receive the invitation that had been extended to them. He's saying, yes, I see you, I see the conditions of your heart and still my desire is that you would come and find rest for your souls. He wants to put the broken back together. He he wants people to experience the deepest healing in the, the whole, full parts of their person. And he wants us to experience life as it was supposed to be. Look, um, I know this is a lot, you know, and I scream a little bit. That's like a full confession here, but nobody's afraid of that. We're all sweating now, huh? Um, Here's what I want to say. I'm going to end. This this progression that we see in the, the life, or I think from the text tonight, seems um, simple enough, and each one has its own difficulties. But um, over the last two weeks, I feel like I've kind of done them all. And so I feel like I should tell you about that. I had a really hard, uh, difficult two weeks. I wouldn't say it was like hard, traditionally hard, but like a difficult last two weeks. Even on Thursday, I was walking out after writing this glorious teaching, and, um, and my car had been towed because it was first Thursday. So anyway, that was annoying, and I'm lamenting that with you, and all the money that got paid to the city of Portland because they wanted to have a party in, a, in my parking space. So anyway, that was really annoying, but blessed first Thursday. Um, it was a, so it was a tough, that was the ending of the week, so it was like, cool, thank you for all of that. Um, and, and about two weeks ago, God, um, Spirit kind of started knocking, which we do, you know, like we're married, so it's a lot of like, hey babe, so pass the butter, and also, just real quick, uh, there's this thing. Um, about your idea of what's right that's actually wrong. <laughs> and so we started the conversation. I was like, no, let's just keep both of our ideas on the table because I might be right about this thing. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm pretty compliant in most areas of my life, but when it comes to relationships, I like to tell God how things should go. And um, this is that space for me. So um, he's like, hey, we should talk about this. I was like, you know, let's just keep both of our ideas. Let's just keep talking about it. You go to work and I'll come anyway, and we'll talk about it later. And um, so that happened. And and eventually, God was like, hey, I need to tell you the truth about some things in your heart. And I was like, no, thank you. That's, that's okay. I think I know. I'll just deal with it, and you do whatever. And no, he just like kept persisting, kept saying, like, Bethany, I need to tell you the truth about what's happening. And the whole time, I'm resisting him. I'm just like, I don't want to hear it, because I think I already know. And if you tell me the truth, it means that the things in my life I used to have victory over, I still don't have victory over, and the shame will come, and I will be crushed by the weight of that. And, and so he's like, okay, uh, I still have to tell you the truth. As he moves towards me and moves towards me and moves towards me, and finally he just said like, I, you know, I spent the next three days being like, cool, Netflix, you know, and with an E, she's awesome, same, you know, like Halloween costume for the rest of my life, it built in, or whatever it may be, and just kind of like, no, God, it's okay, like looking at other things, doing other things, working, avoiding best I could and finally he just said like you are looking to other things I was trying to talk to my therapist a lot about things that were going on justify my behavior and I'm a master I can do that master at that and and she was still like yeah I don't know sounds like you should talk to God I'm like no but we can do that he's here with us uh you know that whole thing that we all try you know we're all here all that to say God is um, convicting me very deeply that I had gone to other sources as opposed to coming to him and um 
And I was so angry at this point. Like, this was just enough. You know, we were in a fight, full-blown fight. And finally, um, as I began to, like, actually go to Jesus and say, like, maybe you are right, I began to respond to an invitation, and he just, with tenderness, with so much tenderness, just said, like, I'm inviting you to come. I'm actually, the whole point of all of this is to get you to a place where you don't have to bear this burden you've been disillusioned about. You keep telling me there's not a burden, there's not a burden, there's not a burden, and I'm your father, and I know there's a burden. And so this pursuit, this, this rhythm I'm calling you to is more about life to the full for you than it is about me coming at you and being like, well, you didn't put your shoes away the way I asked you. It's nothing like that. It has everything to do with his goodness towards me. And then he comes at the very end, he's just like, come to me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm coming. <laughs> you know, I mean, still not loving all his ideas, but still coming. And he meets me deeply in this space, and I am not burdened up here standing before you because he has carried the load. Am I still walking beside him? Are there a lot of things I have to relearn and look at again and address? Yes, all those things. But at the end of the day, Jesus has carried the hardest part. So church, just the encouragement is that this isn't some regulation, some list, even though there's numbers next to it. It's not a a checklist for you to just, look what I did every day. It's, It's an invitation for you to come, all of you who are weary and burdened. If you're not weary and burdened, probably the invitation, I mean, it's there, but you're probably not as open to the invitation, but for those of us who are burdened, who know there's something that's been pressing into us, something that feels off, something that's wrong, the invitation is to come and to do these things not for the purpose of him regimenting our lives, but for the purpose of him bringing freedom and life to us, to breathe oxygen into the places we don't even know how to ask him to breathe oxygen into. Jesus' invitation, it is one of love, and it is for us tonight. It's for those of us specifically who have tried to do things our own way, and it hasn't been working very well. It's for those of us who are ready to say yes to what Jesus has. It's for those of us even who are not ready. (laughs) It will be waiting. The invitation still stands.